Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books by or about women. And this is episode four, and today we're going to discuss Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward and Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi. Good stuff, good stuff. I'm so excited. I know. I'm very proud that I pronounce things pretty well. (laughs) Good for you. I know. Thank you. Thank you. I have a traditional American tongue, which uh, can't really do much in the way of pronouncing other people's names. And, you know, I was raised in the South, so sometimes I really struggle. You just add a twang to most things. I leave out syllables and who knows (laughs) what else. Um, so, well, at least the first one, um, Salvage the Bones, is what we're going to start out with. And it's set in southern Mississippi, so you'll feel right at home. Yes. This is so good. I love this book. Yeah. Didn't she win an award recently? Yes. Um, she just got an award called the Strauss Living's Award. And what I was able to find out about it is it's just an award that enables writers to take time off to focus on books. So she, I know. So she just got this award. So she teaches at Tulane university in new Orleans, but now she's on sabbatical and has this money where she can uh, work on her next novel. And she says that it's again, another novel about family. So I am super, super, super stoked about this. Yeah, she really does amazing work with family themes. Um, And I know, like, she just came out with, um, she was editing a book by voices in, um, young black voices, um, or some such theme. And so it's supposed to be really good. I haven't taken a look at it yet, but I did read, in preparation for this, I did read her memoir, And Then We Reaped, um, which is about growing up poor black in the South. It's really good. I haven't read it. It's on my massive list. I will get to it. Yeah, I have now made a shelf of books I'm supposed to be reading, and it sits by my workspace, and they just look at me and judge me. I have a shelf and a stack, and I had to put the stack away because I felt too guilty. (laughs) Yeah, I think we have complexes. (laughs) It's bad. It's so bad. So let's make a podcast and share our complexes with the world. Why not? Um, okay, so let's just jump let's just jump right in. So Salvage the Bones is a book that I introduced you to. Yes. Uh you told me for several months I need to read it and I kept ignoring you. <laughs> and then uh finally picked it up. Hopefully you've learned your lesson. I did. I did. And I believe we both listened to the audiobook of this one, if I remember correctly. Yes. It was so incredibly amazing because the language is fantastic. Um, and I think oh that that's goodness. part of the richness of this book is the language. So it's one of not all books lend themselves very well to audiobooks, but this one does. And I don't remember who reads it, but it was it was beautiful and compelling, and I almost cried several times. And <sighs> so yeah, good. it is and. We just shared it with everyone, our book club. We were like, everyone read this. So finally it became an unofficial book club book because several other members read it. Has Sam read it? Yeah, he did. He loved it. He loved it. Five stars. Josh hasn't read it, but he's supposed to 
read it this summer. Okay, so today we could talk about this for hours, and we have, but today we are only going to record the particular section and focus on um, the protagonist's female identity um, as a mother. And there's no spoiler, Ash, the protagonist, is pregnant. Now, it is important to note that she is 14 or 15 years old in this book, which just makes the entire meaning of the book change because you realize that this is a girl, really. She's not even a woman yet. This is a girl discovering all these things and having to go through these horrible experiences. And the book is set during Hurricane Katrina, um, the days going up to and then like the day or two after uh, the hurricane hits. So it's set in southern Mississippi in the bay there, right near New Orleans. And you can see, um, well, she describes, you know, the storm as it goes through. And I think that the storm is a great backdrop for this story because so literally the storm is like on the horizon and hanging over their heads. And as the story progresses, that becomes really important. And I think it adds a layer of intensity to the story that it wouldn't have had otherwise. And it's almost its own, it's its own character. It's a character in the story is the storm. Definitely. And each, um, chapter title is the first day, the second day, you know, and then it has a subtitle. So it kind of leads up to it and you can just feel the tension of the storm coming and it's just amazing. And one of the themes in here that Adam and I definitely want to point out is the mythology. Yes, definitely. Uh, it starts on page seven and I'm going to read a little bit here and you're going to get a little taste of what the style is. So it says this summer after 10th grade, we are reading Edith Hamilton's Mythology. The chapter I finished reading day before yesterday is called Eight Brief Tales of Lovers, and it leads into the story of Jason and the Argonauts. I wondered if Medea felt this way before she walked out to meet Jason for the first time, like a hard wind come through her and set her to shaking. The insects singing as they ring the red dirt yard, the bouncing ball, daddy's blues coming from his truck radio. They are they call. They all called me out the door. So beautiful. Oh my goodness. All the senses there. And she's actually looking at Manny. And she loves Manny to pieces. And Manny does prove to be her Jason. And we are going to have some spoilers here. So I apologize. But you, you can't not discuss their relationship. Because that's really a primary, obviously, facet of this book. And the parallels between... Um, the mythology of Medea and Jason, and um, also China, which is the pit bull. And I think that Jessamyn Ward does an excellent job of weaving all of these things together. And even though we are going to be talking a little bit about the plot, the plot is so complex that you really just can't. I mean, there's just so much here. It's so rich. And what's interesting is that there are several parallels and the primary, I guess if you wanted to go traditional, the primary theme of the book is motherhood and what is the identity of a mother. So you have Medea, who's a mother, China the pit bull, which is her brother's pit bull that is having puppies in the beginning of the book. You have Esh's identity as a mother and then you have her Esh's own mother who died uh, when she was giving birth to Esh's little brother. It goes through all the difference. And then one of the things here is that the story feels like a myth. You can, through the language, it's so disturbing in a way, and it gives you a very surreal feeling. You have this hurricane coming in. And to do that, it starts out really early in the book on page, we have page four here. 
and I'm going to read this paragraph about China giving birth. And it is, trigger warning, it is a little gross. So it says, um, she don't need no help pushing, and China doesn't. Her sides ripple. She snarls, her mouth a black line. Her eyes are red. The mucus runs pink. Everything about China tenses, and there are a million marbles under her skin, and then she seems to be turning herself inside out. At her opening, I see a purplish-red bulb. China is blooming. Her writing is so visceral, and that's like, there's certain parts where I could almost, like, the way that she describes the surroundings, like, I could almost smell or feel what she's describing. It's, in, it's incredible. I don't know how she does it. She uses all of the senses. She doesn't shy away from describing things if they are disgusting. She describes them that way, but she does it in a, a way that's, that is beautiful. I keep saying that, but it's, it's, you, can, you can hear it in the sections that we've read that even though it's, she's giving birth to this puppy and that is very you know, horrible, and it's in like this really dirty shed and, and whatnot, like, it is, it is fantastic writing. And I think that that realism or like the poetry of her language is important for the topic because she does talk about some very serious issues, including like young pregnancy and poverty and race and class and all these different issues and something about how she writes about it. It's not degrading or it doesn't, I don't know, like she gives her characters dignity in everything that happens to them. Yeah, and in reviewing this, I, I saw that, you know, as well. It's like she's writing her own mythology for the the right. South. And she has this theme of mythology going through and she's making all these comparisons and the language itself lends itself to a mythological telling um, and the very word choice. Like I could go through and study her as a writer and learn so much about description alone. Well, and I think that the emphasis on words is also reflected in Esh's story herself because there is a there is a big emphasis on books and education or maybe not education as much as like Esh really seems to derive power or strength from the words that she's reading in the books that she's reading and especially from these mythological stories, but she references several other books as well throughout the story and I think that that's definitely reflected in how Jessamyn Ward tells the story. She she has to find her own identity as a mother because her mother died when she was younger. So she reads these books and this myth, these myths have these horrible mothers like Medea who served their husband slash ex-husband, you know, children in a well, pie or something. You know, like how is she going to find out a positive female example, a strong, you know, you know, every woman... Every girl needs a strong female example, and she doesn't have that. She has China, of all things. And China has a very violent relationship with motherhood. Like, when she mates with Kilo, uh, it's described very violently. She ends up fighting. It was Kilo that she fought, right? Yeah, it was. And he tears at, like, you know, her nipples and and rips. It's like he's attacking her motherhood. Um, And they have problems with, like, Parvo and different things with the puppies. But China keeps fighting for her children. And at when um, Esh's mom gives birth to Junior, she lives, but then she's bleeding. So her dad takes her to the hospital, and she never sees her mom again. And then uh, there's this line, the next paragraph says, what China is doing is fighting, like she was born to do. And it's like, well, China is the fighter, like the real, like why didn't her mom, why didn't Esh's mom fight? You know, China fights for her puppies. And I, I think that, 
I think that example so beautifully describes like Esh's journey to discovering what it is to be a mother because she is confused like she sees China and she starts thinking about herself as a mother and it makes her think about her own mother and she's just definitely conflicted and you know like you said she doesn't have a, a good model for how to behave or even how to feel and in a way she is the mother to her brother she has two older brothers one's 17 and then another one's 16 and then she has a younger one who's what eight ten something like that yeah around that age somewhere and so she is a mother to them in a way and she has to figure that out and she also her relationship with her baby's father is very it it reminds me honestly of Jason because and a lot of the male protagonists in mythology because they're very focused on passion and loving this woman and then they don't really stick by her so there's a section I want to read which is my favorite description in the entire book she talks about when she has sex with Manny and from an early age you have to understand that boys have been using her like that her entire life and she has known no difference no adult has stepped in and explained to her that she is a woman who does not have to do this she doesn't have to give up her body to a man if she doesn't want to and you know so on so she's lived in these circumstances her entire life on page 16 it says uh, referring to Manny he was peeling away my clothes like orange rind he wanted the other meat the pulpy ripe heart the sticky heart the boy saw through my boyish frame my dark skin my plain face the girly heart that before Manny I'd let boys have because they wanted it and not because I wanted to give it I'd let boys have it because for a moment I was Psyche or Eurydice or Daphne. I was beloved. But with Manny, it was different. He was so beautiful, and still he chose me again and again. He wanted my girl heart, and I gave him both of them. It's so beautiful. It is, and it's one of the most beautiful descriptions of sex that I have ever read. It describes it as an emotional experience that she is experiencing and giving to him because she loves him. And he just uses her. Mm -hmm. And earlier it says he had never kissed me except like this with his body, never his mouth. And he does not love her. He's using her. He won't kiss her. He won't look at her. And um, when they break up, so to speak, or when she gets over him is when they're also in the bathroom and he wants to have sex with her there. And she finally grabs his face and shoves it in hers and says, look at me. And then he realizes that she's pregnant because he can feel her stomach. And he flips out and runs away like Jason did. It's like she's living her own, she's stuck in her own mythology. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking too, because you can see this longing in her that she wants. Like even in that description, you can tell that she wants something better than what she has. It's almost like just out of her reach in a way or she thinks she's getting it but that sense of longing definitely runs throughout the story yes and it's like because all these boys are treating her like a sex object she doesn't view her body or herself as anything but that it's like she cannot see that she she doesn't have control over her body like she wants to I think that this is something important to think about too because we both recently read sex object by by Jessica Valenti and she talks about in that book about how she had men you know come onto her or try to you know flirt with her or whatever and she never felt like she had the agency or the power to say no because her as just an object of pleasure for other people 
she never like valued herself or saw herself as being worthy. And so I think that that's definitely something that I know that some girls struggle with from time to time. And so I think that the way, I think you can see that same idea reflected in this book and in Esh and what, how she views herself. Definitely. We are going a little over on time. So I will end with the end quote here. And if if you don't like spoilers or hate any sort of clues of any kind, just jump ahead the 15 seconds that you have on your little iPhone there or whatever, and you'll be okay. (laughs) So um, it says, China. She will return standing tall and straight, the milk burned out of her. She will look down on the circle of light we have made in the pit, and she will know that I have kept watch, that I have fought. China will bark and call me sister. In the star-suffocated sky, there is a great waiting silence. She will know that I am a mother. I think it's beautiful. It's like the best last paragraph. It's so beautiful because like she goes from not knowing whether or not she even wants to be a mother or whether or not she should keep the baby or what she should do or how she should handle it. And for her to just come into this at the end, is just beautiful. And a few pages before, you know, big, she's talking to big Henry and he's like, you know, she, she mentions that like the dad doesn't have, or the baby doesn't have a daddy. And he's like, you know, he's got lots of daddies, like just like this, you know, she's just so supported and this presumably really hard path she has to go on. So yeah, I'm hugging the book right now because <laughs> I just have no words. Like, oh my goodness! But I'm going to put it, put it down. We can switch gears. And that was "Salvage the Bones" by Jasmine Ward. Your turn, Autumn. Then my pick this week is Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi, and it is actually a two-volume graphic novel. And I will say I am new to graphic novels. Uh, I've not, this is only the second set that I've ever read and I'm hooked and I'm surprised that I'm hooked. (laughs) I have a list for you when you're ready. Soon. Hold on. I will. Yes. (laughs) I'll be waiting for you young Padawan when you are ready. Soon. I will be soon. So this book or this, I guess this book this this set of books, this set of graphic novels is about, it's based off of a true story and it is the story of Marjan and she was born in Iran and let me just read this quote from the introduction because I think that it best summarizes the books. She says, since then, then being when the Shah was forced out of Iran in 1979, This old and great civilization has been discussed mostly in connection to fundamentalism, fanaticism, and terrorism. As an Iranian who has lived more than half my life in Iran, I know that this image is far from the truth. This is why writing Persepolis was so important to me. And I will say that when I (laughs) I had several reactions when I finished them, my first reaction was, shock that I couldn't believe that I'd never heard this side of the story before and then I felt guilty and ashamed and moved and in awe I mean it's just a beautiful it's incredible I really feel like it should be required reading yeah and you know Emma um, Watson is the one that recommended it and that's originally why I picked it up 
because um, I'm trying to read all of those. So kudos to Emma Watson. Yes, and that book club is Our Shared Shelf, and it's on Goodreads, I believe, if you want to follow along with that. We'll put it in the show notes so you can follow the link to Goodreads. So the first book is called The Story of a Childhood, and it gives a lot of background and history of Iran, and Persepolis is the ancient Persian name for the area. And so she just kind of talks about like where the skirmish came from and about her family and just how drastically her life changed when the war started. And so her family is, um, they come from a communist background, right? Yes. So her family is like very progressive. And she says in like on page six, so it's the second page very early on, She's talking about the change in, like, the change that happened after the revolution started. And she says, I really didn't know what to think about the veil. Deep down, I was very religious, but as a family, we were very modern and avant-garde. Her dad was an architect, and her mom, I believe she was a teacher. I may be wrong about that, but... So her mom was a professional woman, and her dad was a, a professional, and so they weren't... They weren't very religious at all. Really, they weren't exactly what modern culture perceives people from this part of the world as being. Uh, so, what I found really interesting was the difference between her parents and Marjan. And there's this scene um, where she says, you know, that the god gave the Shah the right to lead, and her dad's like, "No, actually, let me tell you what really happened, because we're related to this prince." Before the Shah, there was, you know, the emperor, I don't, whatever they called him, and he had tons and tons and tons of kids. And so most people in Iran probably are related somehow to the royal family because of all the kids. But so he actually had, they actually had family experience. But when she was younger, she said that she wanted to be a prophet. Um, And it didn't matter that she was a girl. And she said in her head that, Marks and God looked very similar, which is if you see, you see the picture and there's two of them and she's like, but Marks had like curlier hair. And it is hard. Like to try, I, I really struggled when I was trying to write down notes and quotes about this because the images just tell so much of the story. And like that panel, especially the comparison between God and Marks is just, it really emphasizes what she's saying. So the story, so the first book just talks about her education and how important, again, how important her books were to her because instead of the media wasn't very reliable. So her parents, as a, she doesn't say how old she was, but I, she's pretty young, um, would bring her all of these really heavy theoretical books about revolution, about history, and how at that early age, these books shaped her ideas about her country and about herself. And she really does a good job of showing how how drastically the country changed in such a short period of time. <laughs> Guess whose turn it is to make a cameo? Margo. <laughs> um, you know, I thought it was really interesting because at first they thought the revolution was a great thing because it would give... Uh, the communist or at least more liberal parties to take control of the country, but that didn't happen. And at first, all these communist prisoners are being released. And 
she talks about how she met like her uncle who finally was released from prison and two other random people that they met and they would describe like what they did to people in prison and so and so died from being tortured and I'm like she is like 10 years old or younger why are you telling her these things but she experienced a lot of life that even adults have never experienced even before she was in high school yeah and I mean she definitely has a lot of experiences like she talks about um the contraband tape she would buy and her interest in american music and um those kinds of things so like it's she does also like a good job of showing almost the parallel lives they were living because they would have a public life where they would follow all of these very extremist religious rules and then her parents would have parties on the weekend and you know she'd listen to this punk music and she had you know a denim jacket and night sneakers and so it's just crazy contrast to just see how they lived between these two spaces and there's a part in the second book where she says you've become you become um well versed in seeing how a woman is wearing her hair underneath the veil and she has like it almost looks like an x-ray of the um hijab uh that she she's wearing and she has like different you know characters female characters and you can see like this one has her hair in a ponytail and whatever and I never really thought about how required clothing would affect culture right um but then she is very good at reminding us as western readers that they're still people and they're still just as diverse underneath the veils as you know any other culture and persons are right so let's segue to book two, which is the story of a return. And it it talks about how she was sent to a French school in Vienna. She'd gone to a French school in Iran at one point and how she really struggles to assimilate into society because people discriminate against her and think that she's radicalized and are afraid of her. And she tries a lot of different things and has a lot of failed relationships. And she finally decides that she needs to go back home. So it's been a couple of years, and by the time she gets back home, things have become way more strict, especially in regards to women. And she finally enrolls in art school, and there's a great passage. I'm trying to read this page. Um, well, and to go off of what you were saying about the the woman underneath the clothes, there's these two panels, and she's, she says that... Um, she says, our struggle, talking about the women, our struggle is more discreet. It hinged on the little details. To our leaders, the smallest thing could be a subject of subversion, showing your wrist, a loud laugh, having a Walkman. In short, everything was a pretext to arrest us. I even remember spending an entire day at the committee because of a pair of red socks. The regime had understood that one person leaving her house while asking herself, are my trousers long enough? Is my veil in place? Can my makeup be seen? Are they going to whip me? No longer asks herself, where is my freedom of thought? Where is my freedom of speech? My life, is it livable? What's going on in the political prisons? Um, it's like the veil itself muffles. Um, so I that instead of giving honor um, to God, which is what it's really supposed to be doing, they're using the the veil to to muffle the voice and thoughts and independence of women in general. And instead of allowing them to use their talents for Allah, they're just, you know, muffling the entire half right. of, you know, the population. And so I, so reading these panels, like, really 
really changed kind of how, like, I never really thought about it that way before. But if I feel like after she'd gone away and come back, Marjan really had some distance maybe from the um, situation. And she beautifully just explains, like, what she thought and felt about all these different cultural changes. And there's one panel, panel, set of panels that I really liked. And she talks about they were becoming more strict about, even more strict after she got to art school, about the women's veils exactly where they hit and, you know, the width of the trousers and so on. And so at this one point, she stands up in front of this guy who's giving a lecture on, you know, the horrors of immodest women if they're veils are an inch short or whatever. And she says, um, she stands up in the hall in front of everyone. And Marjan says, you say that our headscarves are short, that our pants are indecent, that we make ourselves up, etc. But as a student of art, a good portion of my time is spent in the studio. I need to be able to move freely, to be able to draw. A longer, health scar- longer headscarf will make the task more difficult. Uh, and then she says, you don't hesitate to comment on us, but our brothers present here are all have shapes and sizes and haircuts and clothes. Sometimes they wear clothes so tight that we can see everything. Why is it that I, as a woman, am expected to feel nothing when watching these men with their clothes sculpted on? But they, as men, can get excited by two inches less of my headscarf. I love that. (laughs) And it's like, uh, yeah, come on. So she gets called in, of course, and has to talk to this guy. He's like, you you need to calm down a little bit. Well, I think that the things she talks about are not limited to her culture. Like as I was reading through this, I was thinking through some of the things that, that some different like cultural standards that we have here in America about women or the way we think that women should dress or the way that men should dress. And if you think about it, like most directives, I won't say all, but I would say most directives are about how like women dress and there's very little commentary on how men dress. So these things are actually universal. And I, I found that that really striking as I was reading this, how much I could make, draw parallels between how, like some of these experiences that I've had and it really helped me uh, empathize more. And it's easy when, you know, you see on TV all of the women in hijabs and head coverings, they all look the same and it's hard to remember that each one of them has a very distinct and, you know, personality and likes and dislikes and it's just, it washes over you know, women's individuality that way. It just helped remind me as, you know, a Westerner that, you know, I need to overcome some of my preconceived notions as well. And that's what this book is wonderful for. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And throughout the book there, I guess throughout the story, she draws these amazing images of um, her friends like in school and out of school and how different they look when, you know, they're not covered. And, but she even shows like she, really shows how they really carried on basically normal lives by and large. There were a lot of difficulties. Like she talks about this boyfriend she had and she ended up marrying him and how men and women weren't allowed to touch in public unless they were married and all these different things that are really were difficult for her to adjust to after being in Europe. And it was, and in Europe she had, um, a really hard time adjusting and she ended up homeless for a few months and it ended up like with pneumonia and in the hospital and she came home and she heard all of these stories about the war and the revolution. It was very hard for her to be able to cope with what she had experienced on the streets with their war. And it was like, she was trying to compare it in her brain and she had to, 
you know, move over that and just really, you know, hard is hard. And she talks about the different things she did to get over her depression, like going to art school and taking up aerobics and different things. And I think in the end, she, oh, there's like, and the book is funny too. Like it is so funny. Like This is a, obviously the things that she talks about are very serious in places, but like, there are just so many like funny parts. I just found myself like giggling through the whole thing. But she finally decides, so she's in art school and she finally decides in the end to, to return back to Europe. But you really see her, like, it's amazing because throughout the series you can really see her progress, like, go through all the different stages of um, abandonment and isolation and reassimilation and not feeling like she's part of her country. And at one point, she even, like, when she's in um, Vienna, she denies the fact that she's from Iran because she's so ashamed of where she is. And I was thinking, too, as I was reading this, oh, as I was reading this, there's one part where her parents are describing why... They're not going with her to Europe, and they say it's because they know that if they go to Europe, you know, they will have to be become, like, um, house cleaners and taxi cab drivers. And so that really, you know, I live in a very metropolitan area, and there's a lot of immigrants, and there's a lot of refugees. And I think it's important. Like, this book helped remind, remind me, especially in light of the refugee crisis and some things going on in the world, to think beyond like political issues on TV and to think of people from other places as real people who have real jobs and real careers. Um, the last thing that I want to touch on here for me is it was interesting when you look at the, both ends of the books, both, you know, they come the two volume version, each end with her leaving and it's almost parallel like frames and you can see how sad her parents are and then the first one you know they want her to have a good education and to be raised outside of the revolution that they they give her up and her mom her mom faints and the last big you know panel is like uh two-thirds of the page ish and her dad's carrying her mom away and the last one is a similar size and it's them waving but it's like they're more accepting this time that they know she'll be okay She's come back, and yeah, they're sad, but it's it's not as sad as the first one, and it's just so interesting to see that to come into her own, she had to leave her country, come back to her country, and then leave her country again, and how that must have ravaged her identity. And now she speaks five billion languages, not really. She's so amazing. A lot. She is so smart, and we're gonna well, we're gonna put a link to a video of uh, someone interviewing her for her movie. I highly recommend the yes. movie. It the is movie great. It is amazing. And it's it is not exactly the same plot as the books. I did notice that she includes some details in the movie that aren't in the books, and there's some details in the books that aren't in the movie. So it's not like you'll be getting the exact same story twice. And it's just interesting to see her art come alive because it is, you know, in the style, animated style of her, you know, graphic novels. And it's like it just comes alive and it is really beautiful to see that. And I also found it interesting that I watched it with the English dubbing, but I also had the script at the bottom. And sometimes it's different. <laughs> like in the, uh, this is just a fun fact, but in the dubbing, they took out a lot of the language. <laughs> like all this, a lot of swearing and they like toned down some of the crass words. But in the text at the bottom, uh, you could see like they kept added it back in. And grandma, especially in the movie. Oh my goodness! Yes. 
her grandmother is a feisty character. And, and that's part of the way that Marjan is able to tell such a very sad and depressing story that raises your awareness, but it is so funny. And she uses humor to be able to communicate that in a palatable way because just reading all of that all at once would just be really hard to take in. But she does it really well, gives you a perspective that I don't think many Western people would have otherwise. So that was a brief summary and a very <laughs> light discussion of uh, <laughs> there's so it's just so much of Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi, and of course we will have links to all of these books, well, <laughs> all both of these books and everything we've talked about in our show notes. Um, and one last reminder, if you love The Reading Woman, please rate and review us in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast, because that helps other people find us and spread the word about Reading Women. Um, and that would be incredibly helpful. And then also on our website, we have some really cool links right now for some discounts for Book of the Month Club, which we are both huge fans of Book of the Month. And we also will, that's where we'll post our show notes and we post interesting articles and just other random stuff we come across on the internet. Because I am an article fiend. And I am an enabler. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So now instead of sending all of them to Autumn, which means she gets like five a day, I am adding more to our website. So generally speaking, they are all about women and women in writing and publishing. And uh, I recently got into the trend of posting previous reviews of books that we have read that we talk about um, from our Goodreads or ones that I have talked about that we're going to look at new books for the month that I have then read and so on. So please, please check that out at readingwomenpodcast.com. So, and that's our show. Join us next time when we are going to be talking about filling the Harry Potter void. Muppet arms everywhere. I'm so excited. I'm super excited. I I love Harry Potter more than Percy Jackson. I will save all my gushing for next time. So (laughs) we will probably be doing some gushing on, let's see, and Twitter and Instagram, which, by the way, you can find us at me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter, Litzy, and Instagram at Autumn Privet, and Kendra at Katie Winchester. And thank you so much for listening to the Reading Women podcast. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.